Hey listeners, Dr. Taryn Marie here from Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. If our podcast speaks to you, consider leaving us a warm review at the top of the page on Spotify or at the bottom of the page on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews and opinions mean a lot to us, and it allows us to reach more good folks just like you. All right, now on to the show. Welcome to Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience. I'm Dr. Taryn Marie. And on this series, we have the opportunity to hear from well-known people who tell their often surprising, lesser well-known stories of resilience. Today on our Flourish or Fold podcast, we have Seth Joyner, former professional Philadelphia Eagles player. And Seth has so many amazing things to share with us. Perhaps one of my biggest takeaways is what Seth knows that we don't know about manifestation and creating our own reality. Listen in now. So I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today about resilience. And that seems to be a concept that's played a pretty key role in, uh, in, your, in your life, personally and professionally. Well, not only, you know, in my life personally and professionally in the past, but, you know, even much more so um, in the present mm. and in a lot of the things that I'm doing now in the present. Mm. Um, there are, you know, some speaking engagements that I'm doing. And, um, you know, once I tell people that I spoke at Cigna about resiliency, mm-hmm. that becomes a theme that they now want me to talk about. Yeah, you know, because I mean, the team building, the um, leadership and all of those things, those are, you know, it's kind of becoming passe, if you will. Right. Um, a lot of motivation and motivation, a lot of motivational speakers and, and speakers are using those themes. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that resiliency is the next big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. It's a it's a hot topic right now. And mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, at least here in the West as Americans, if, if we could sort of bottle resilience the way we've bottled sparkling water and, and lattes, we, we would, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's been kind of a common theme um, for this nation, if you will, mm-hmm. resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, just, we've just recognized it and validated it in a way where now we can begin to talk about it yeah and we can begin to talk about it with young people because the more resilient a young person can be the more resilient young young adult and adult they're going to be um Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like mental toughness if you will you know it's one of the things that we talked about in the past Mm -hmm. mental toughness isn't something that we all come into this world born with Mm -hmm. it's something that is developed through the things, the experiences in life and the things that we go through. Yeah. You know, the tough times, you know, and the good times, if you will. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I love that. And you're right. We have had some conversations about this. I think one of the things that I love about the way that you characterize mental toughness is it it really sort of falls in line with how we're thinking about a contemporary approach to resilience. Right. And so I think for a long time, people thought, 
things like resilience and grit and mental toughness, which are all distinct concepts that we were maybe inoculated with those at birth and we got a certain amount and then it was, you mm-hmm. know, sort of up to us to live with that, you know, right. whatever kind of issue we got of resilience or, or mental t- toughness. And and now we know it's something that can be cultivated and developed over time and, and, and primarily developed uh, by, by facing challenge. And when I say challenge, adverse challenge mm-hmm. more so than positive challenge. Um, you, you are no, you are no stranger to challenge mm-hmm. yourself. Um, I'd, I'd love, you know, for our audience to hear a little bit more about your resilience story. You know, you're a, you're a well-known person, right, here in Philadelphia and across the nation uh, as a result of your football career and other contributions you've made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think your resilience story is something that's, that's, less, that's less well-known. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to just dive in with you, maybe kind of as a, as a child and, and hear a little bit more about uh, what it was like growing up. Um, because I think when we see someone of your stature, someone who played in the, in the NFL, someone who's now been inducted into the, into the Eagles mm-hmm. hall of fame, uh, we think, wow, this guy must've just had everything in his favor in order to get to such an, in, such an incredible place. But that, that in fact is not your story. Well, I think the reason, one of the reasons why resiliency is so, it's, it's such a trigger point mm-hmm. is because, you know, I think people now realize that the majority of successful people in this world, they come from tough circumstances early in their life. Mm. Um, and it's the desire, the need um, for something greater, something better than your current circumstances that drives you mm-hmm. um, and, and forces you to be resilient. It's, you have no other choice. Mm. You know, for me, I had no other choice but to succeed and change, you know, my early lot in life. I mean, yeah. it was, born to a single parent mom yeah um you know she worked multiple jobs uh to take care of us um i have an older brother and a younger sister so i'm I'm the middle child and she is the most incredible woman that most incredible person i've ever known everything that i am is because of that woman you know she always taught us that you know you weren't less than anyone but you surely you know were good enough Mm mm-hmm um, mm-hmm. to look at yourself in the proper light in order to be successful. Um, and it was tough. You know, it was tough. I mean, it, there were there were times, you know, one of the things that really drove me, you know, it's in the forefront and the picture in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, even at 54 years old, I'm thinking I can remember a Christmas where... And I can see the tree up, and there was one gift under the tree. Mm. And there, and was it one gift for each of you? Like oh, there no, were no, no, three no. gifts because there were three of you. One gift. One gift. And as a middle child, it didn't take me long to decipher that that gift wasn't for me. Ah. Um. So, when you look back at those times, uh huh. Um, when you realize that there were times, you know, where you open up the refrigerator and there was nothing in the refrigerator but a jar of mayonnaise. Mm -hmm. You know, we, it it was tough, Mm -hmm. but we had great instruction. We had great direction. You know, we knew that we were loved Mm -hmm. and we got great encouragement, you know, at all times. And so, so sometimes, you know, 
being born with a silver spoon in your mouth isn't necessarily the best thing for you. You know, I'm kind of experiencing some of that even with my children now. From generation to generation, the plan or the objective is to be better each generation. Mm -hmm. And my mom certainly, you know, did her best to create the best for my generation, being myself, my brother and my sister. Um, But with my success, you know, came a little bit of entitlement as far as my kids are concerned, Mm -hmm. because the things that I had to struggle through, I made sure that they didn't have to struggle through. Mm -hmm. And now when I look back on that, you know, to me, that's somewhat of a mistake, Mm -hmm. because when you make life that easy, you know, for your kids or for people, for anyone, they don't understand resiliency. They don't understand how to persevere through situations. And it's difficult because, you know, now the Pandora is out of the box. How do you put it back in? Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So now they've got to learn some tough lessons, you know, in order for them to understand, you know, where I'm coming from. And sometimes it's a tough love situation that causes conflict. Um, But I realize it's no different than how my mom dealt with me. You know, there were things that I didn't like that she was doing. Um, that now I can look back in retrospect and understand that that was the best thing for me at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like discipline. It's like training. It doesn't feel good in the moment, but the benefits of it, you see it, you see it down the road. So, and as I grew up, you know, I got into football, started playing football, developed a passion for football. Mm-hmm. I, I played multiple sports, baseball, basketball, football, uh, ran some track for a little while. But football was the one sport that I loved. Mm -hmm. And growing up where I grew up in New York, football wasn't really a big sport. New York at that time was a huge basketball, you know, state. So I I wasn't heavily recruited. You know, in high school, we didn't win a lot of games, you know, which brought on a a lot of angst because I'm highly competitive. I'm the sorest loser in the world. (laughs) I hate to lose at anything. And we, quite, quite frankly, didn't win many games. You know, so there was a lot of anger that I could invest so much of my energy and my time into something and yet not, you know, see, you know, not at least be able to, you know, experience the fruit of winning Mm -hmm. and the joy of winning Mm -hmm. and being successful at that thing that you work so, so hard at. And I can remember coming home from a game one Friday night, you know, and I and my mom could see the angst on my face. And she said, why do you do this? You know, why do you, she doesn't understand. She had already implanted those seeds of resiliency and perseverance and confidence. She had, they were already in me. Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, my goal one day is to play in the NFL. Yeah. And if I have to endure this now to get to where I need to get to, then so be it. And she never said another word because I endured the same thing on the, on the collegiate level. I went away to college, played on a team that, one maybe one or two games a year Mm -hmm. that was difficult again Uh, here i am you know at the next level yeah you know investing you know massive time and energy and sweat and tears and guts into you know this thing that i love to do yeah and we don't ever succeed at it Mm -hmm. you know to make things even that much more difficult i didn't get along with my college coach I, what I was struck by is when you were talking about coming home from this game and your mom saying, why do, why do you do it, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, not too long before that, you had signed up for several seasons of youth football mm-hmm. and quit, right, right, in the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. 
and your mom finally came to you and she said, look, I'm not going to spend my twenty five dollars, you know, on this season of, you know, it's a little more today. Right. But but I'm not going to spend my twenty five dollars on this season of youth football if you keep quitting. So you've got two choices. You can either not sign up or you can not quit. Right. And you talk about that as kind of the the moment Mm -hmm. for you when you decided not to quit. It's a turning point. Right. It's a turning point. It was a turning point because I knew that I signed up the first year I signed up. The first year I signed up, I had no idea what I was in for mm-hmm. because back then you didn't go from flag football into tackle football. You know, back then we just played tackle football. Nobody played flag football back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had no idea what I was in for. Um, after two weeks, I quit. Um, the second year, because I was, you know, big for my age, I had to play up with the older kids and, um, and just got harassed, mm-hmm. you know, as a younger kid because they knew that I was, I was younger, you know, I was bigger, but you know, I was younger, not only in age but probably in maturity. Mm-hmm. So, I quit again in the third year. She, you know, I, I bugged her about signing up, and she looked at me and she said, "If I put my twenty-five bucks out here again, uh-huh. you're going to finish this year." Now. I knew when she put it out there that it was a wrap, that she was going to take me to practice every day and I was going to see this thing finished to the end. So there was a turning point. You know, there, the teaching moment there was, hey, you know, finish what you start. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do something, finish it. It might be painful while you're going through it. You know, it, it, it's like life. You know, you go through things and you start something and you want to get out because it's not going the way that you want it to go. But ultimately, there's some lessons in there that you need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that you must be taught through that process. And very rarely, like I said before, very rarely can you see it in the moment. Mm-hmm. It usually comes sometime down the road as you look back, you know, in retrospect at that experience and you realize, wow, you know, X, Y and Z happened. Um and what did I learn from it? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we don't look at things from that that, that standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so emotional in the moment yeah. that we can't look back and say to ourselves, okay, what was, you know, what what was the teaching points? What what was the lessons? What did I learn? Yeah. Because everything we do and everything we go through, there's something to be learned from it. Sure. I, I love that because I think, you know, you're speaking to one of these core tenets of resilience, which is, when we're when we're going through it, mm-hmm. when we're in the midst of the challenge, sometimes the only thing we can do is keep going, right? We don't necessarily recognize the lessons or the learning or the wisdom that we're developing in that well, you moment. Can't. It's not until you're looking back. You can't. You can't in the moment recognize it because the pain of what you're going through in that moment is too great. Mm. You know, and you're and for the undeveloped mind. You know, how do you check yourself out of the pain to see the benefits? Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. You almost have to get to a place where, you know, now that at 54 years old, I'm conscious of that fact. Mm -hmm. So when something becomes painful, I'm like, okay, you know, whether whether it's me dealing with the situation or me in prayer. okay, God, what what are you trying to teach me? Mm -hmm. What are you trying to tell me? You know, it's not hurting for no just for some simple reason mm. there's something that you're trying to tell me there's a lesson that i'm having to learn um no pain is wasted no no and i think 
the sooner that we can get to a place where the minute we feel existential pain, that we move away from what we feel in the moment and think about why that pain is there, mm -hmm. that changes everything. Mm -hmm. it, it really changes everything. Mm -hmm. Because we want to dissect why, you know, oh, the pain hurts. So we lock in on the pain. The question is, why is the pain there? Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not talking about me hitting you with a hammer. I'm talking about, you know, when you're going through, you know, maybe a pain, the, the pain of transition, when something doesn't go the way you want it to go and the results that come about, mm -hmm. you know, in the moment we get caught up on the results, mm -hmm. we don't think about what's happening. You know, if we can just get out of the results for a second and go back to how we got there or why we're there, mm -hmm. you know, then therein, in my opinion, that's the secret sauce. One of the things that we talk about in resilience is this notion of, of flipping the paradigm, very similar to what you're saying, which is this idea of instead of you know asking, why is this happening to me, to instead ask, why is this happening for me? Mm -hmm. What am I meant to learn and gain from this, from yep. this circumstance, from this challenge? Well, again, that's difficult to do mm -hmm. because in the moment, you know, I, a good friend of ours is, journeyed on this journey to, you know, transform his, his body. And, you know, he's doing some things weight wise that he's probably not never done before. Mm -hmm. And I would assume that it's painful mm -hmm. for me. Weights aren't painful because that's the world I've lived in for a long time. Yeah. But for him, the weights are probably painful. Mm -hmm. Can you maintain the discipline mm -hmm. to endure the pain for the benefit? Mm -hmm. A lot of times that's what it comes down to. Yeah. A lot of people can endure the pain. Yeah. And that's the point where they quit. Mm -hmm. But if you endure the pain long enough where you can begin to see the benefits, oh, that's just a whole nother, you know, injection, you know, fuel injection of energy. Yeah, I love that. But sometimes fuel people injection. can't people can't get to that place because they focus on the pain and they lose sight of the process of why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I if I think about sort of the the five practices of particularly resilient people. One of the practices, as you know, is productive perseverance, mm -hmm. which is this idea of the intelligent pursuit of a goal. So knowing when to maintain the mission, right? But also knowing when maintaining that mission might have diminishing returns and you need to pivot it in a, in a newer or different mm -hmm direction. You've, you've talked a lot about this idea that dreams and desires manifest at their own pace. You know, you've talked today about how you really have the opportunity, how we have the opportunity to stay with the pain in the moment until those dreams and desires starts to manifest. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how this notion of productive perseverance and, and being patient for our goals and dreams to manifest at their own pace has has emerged for you in your own? One of the things in my past that really set me up to be able to deal with that was my rookie year. A lot of people don't know I got cut. I got released the first two games of my rookie season. In the in the NFL? In the NFL. Okay. So you make um, it all the way to the NFL. I make it all the way to we the sorry. last cut before the regu first regular season game. Okay. The week before the first regular season game, mm -hmm. I get released from the team. Mm -hmm. And I missed the first two games of the season. Mm-hmm. You've done all the work. You've been at training oh, yeah. camp. But you want to know something? I do. That was the most important thing that could have ever happened to me. The most important. I mean, in the moment I looked at it and it was painful. Uh -huh. 
because you know like you said you put all the work in right and you're there you're at the you're at the last cut yeah and all of a sudden the thing that you've revolved your life around mm -hmm. you know now it's not there so mm -hmm. all of a sudden it brings you know and i had i sat at home and i watched those two games well, what, what was that like well it was tough because i'm watching all the guys that i've been working with for the last seven eight weeks mm -hmm. living the dream that i've dreamed about since i was 10 years old mm. and it, to not be a part of that i mean it was the most miserable two weeks of my life but when i got back it sounds heartbreaking well the benefit of it was it created a, a completely new mindset within me hmm. because when i came back and i signed back you know i made a pact with myself i said you're never leaving here again mm. i said it, you're it, never it, leaving here you're again. never leaving here again I said, I said it won't be because of something that you don't do it won't be because you don't do enough it will be a organizational decision because of the numbers or whatever it is, but you won't leave here ever again because of something that you did not do. Wow, that's powerful. And I became obsessed with, you know, my job from the standpoint that, you know, when I came back, I only played special teams. Mm -hmm. um, up until I wanna say week seven or eight, every single week, not only was I preparing for special teams, but I was preparing to play my position mm -hmm. like I was a starter. Mm -hmm. So that meant I had to do double work every day, mm -hmm. you know, because as a special teams player, you know, you know you're not gonna play, you know, because the starters are the starters, you're a backup. The only way you're gonna play is that someone gets hurt, mm -hmm. you know, um, and you don't anticipate someone getting hurt. Mm -hmm. um, so more, more times than not, what happens with young guys is that they will, focus in on the work that they that they know they have to do mm -hmm. and they don't anticipate the work that is to come so as i begin to prepare i'm like i've only got one opportunity i'm not a first round or a second round draft pick if opportunities door opens to me and i'm not prepared it might never open again so i was preparing each and every week each mm -hmm. and every week you anticipated that you would have one shot oh yeah uh -huh. I knew I'd have, I knew somewhere down the road I'd get a shot to show because one of the reasons why I was brought back is because I was a good special teams player. I found out real early in camp that, oh, you know, there'll be three or four spots on the roster for guys who, you know, play special teams really well. And as I began to do the numbers, I realized that, you know, you're not in the numbers for, the line, for a linebacker position, for a backup position. Well, I can make the team as a special teams player. Mm -hmm. And what coaches do, they look at special teams players and they say to themselves, if we can translate that kind of energy, that kind of aggression, that kind of football intellect from special teams over positionally, mm -hmm. then we have something, mm. you know? Um, so I realized that I had to continue doing what I was doing, but I knew at some point, it might not even have been that year. It might have been the following year, but I knew at some point that I was going to have to, I was going to have an opportunity mm -hmm. and that I could ill afford not to be prepared mm -hmm. when that opportunity presented itself. Mm -hmm. um, and Shores Day, week seven, um, all the start linebackers, outside linebackers get hurt. 
Week seven. Week seven. Week seven. Mm-hmm. So the first two weeks you didn't play. Right. Five weeks later. <laughs> five weeks later. Yes. Week seven. Yeah. All the starting linebackers are hurt. All the outside starting linebackers are hurt. Can you imagine that your that your opportunity might come in a, in a year's time? Uh, I didn't know when it would come. Okay. But I wasn't willing, you know, after experiencing what I experienced the first two weeks, uh-huh. I wasn't going to leave it the chance that it might come in week three, the same week that I came back. Yeah. And not be prepared. Yeah. I could ill afford to have that happen. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't going back down that road again. Okay. I made that pack. You know, yeah. and you know, you made one, this promise. Yeah, one thing I know about myself is, you know, I'm 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 a type A type person. When I decide to do something, it's mm-hmm. already done. Mm-hmm. Even though I haven't even taken the the, the action yet, mm-hmm. it is done. It's mm-hmm. over. It's finished. Mm-hmm. It's a wrap. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know that now. I didn't know that then, mm-hmm. but um, that's really just you know the way that it's happened for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Buddy Ryan comes to me. He's like, hey, you know, I'm start, yeah. what, starting you this week. Yeah. What happens in week seven? Tell yeah. us. He goes, I'm starting you this week, not because I want to, but because I have to. Not you know? because I want to, but because I have to. Because I have to. What was it like for you to hear that? Um, I didn't care. You didn't care? No. Mm-hmm. You didn't no. care if he wanted to or if he had to. I didn't, I didn't care. All I, all I knew is that opportunity's door was wide open to me. Mm. That's all I knew. That's all that is that there was a chance for me to get on the field and live my dream, mm-hmm. you know, after being gone the first two weeks. And I was excited. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a great week of practice. Went into the game, had a great game, you know, for first game. And um, actually played so well that by the time um, the other guys got healthy, um, they couldn't get back on the field. Hmm. You know, so, um, you know, when you talk about being patient, Mm -hmm. did I want to be, you know, start a week one? Absolutely. Who doesn't want to, you know, right out the gate, you know, jump into the limelight and be, you know, the cat's meow, if you will. That sounds attractive, doesn't it? It always does. But the reality of it is, you know, what was going on? What was going on for me in those two weeks and what was going on with me in those five weeks leading up, those four weeks leading up to week seven mm-hmm. to me starting. Mm-hmm. You, you come back after watching your team play for two weeks on mm-hmm. television and five weeks later on week seven, you're presented with this opportunity, right? Uh, perhaps in the definition of luck where preparation meets opportunity, you're going to go out in the field and your coach says, I'm going to do this. Not because I want to, but but because I have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what was happening in terms of that preparation for you in those five weeks leading up to that opportunity. Well, the preparation was consistent. You know, you got to realize as a rookie, I was still learning the defense. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, you know, a year and a half later, I was still learning the defense. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we ran a defense that was pretty complex. So it took a while to learn everything that you need to learn, but I was like really learning the basics of the defense. But um, the more I studied in preparation, the more, the faster it began to, you know, take seed. Mm -hmm. Um, And and for me, I think those five five weeks were 
a preparation for, you know, the debut, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've been putting in the work where I'm, I'm positive that other guys that were in my position on the team, they weren't putting in that, that type of work. They were doing the minimum. Mm -hmm. I was doing the maximum. Um, and, excuse me, once the opportunity presented itself, there was no apprehension about it. It was like I knew, I mean, I don't think my position coach had much faith in me. Mm. Um, but I knew because of how I, how was, I was preparing that I would fare well. Mm -hmm. I, I never questioned my talent. I never questioned my ability where other people might have questioned it. Mm -hmm. The preparation piece of it um, was critical mm -hmm. because, you know, the, the thing that perplexes um, coaches more than anything with young players is the fact that they don't know anything, mm -hmm. that they're all that they're learning, that you can't trust them. Um, so when I ex when I showed them that hey, you know, not only do I know what I'm doing, but you can trust me, you can trust me in certain situations, and and that continued to build over the subsequent years. But um, you know, for a young player, that's tough. It's it's really hard, you know, for them to come in in a whole different environment with grown men. You know, I mean, when I came into the league, I was 20 years old, the youngest player in the NFL. You know, had some some good mentors, but you know, confidence is something that I never lacked. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really just about the opportunity to show everybody what a mistake they made and not believing mm -hmm. in me, not seeing all that I could see in myself. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, years later, my head coach, you know, who had the utmost confidence in me, you know, he, he passed away a couple of years ago. He said, you know, and some of the last conversations I had with him, he said, your position coach never wanted you back on the roster. Uh -huh. He couldn't see the talent. He couldn't see the ability. Mm -hmm. He said, but I saw something. He said, there was something about you that reminded me of a player I used to coach a long time ago. Huh. He said, and I, I could see, I knew it was in there. Uh-huh. And so and now it kind of explains to me why my position coach was always, you know, such a pain in my behind. Right. Because he here he's forced to coach this guy, this mm -hmm. kid, that he doesn't see any potential in. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So I mean he just drove me all the time. Mm -hmm. But it was okay because, you know, I was I was in my element. I was doing what I love to do. Yeah. And I wasn't gonna allow him to steal, you know, the joy of my dream. No. I wasn't going to allow him to steal the mm -hmm. joy of my dream. Another tagline. There you go. Period. <laughs> That's amazing. So so how do you do that, right? When we think about this this concept of productive perseverance, which is the intelligent pursuit of a goal. So often we hear about people in all walks of life, but they have similar stories to what you shared, right? Mm -hmm. Where the people around them, the people around you, you had your head coach, but a number of people didn't believe in you. They didn't have faith in you. Mm -hmm. A lot. A lot of people didn't have faith in you. Loved ones, family members, friends. The people that maybe should have, mm -hmm. right? Or we'd, we'd hope, mm -hmm. right? So the, the people that you want to count on in those moments, the people that you think should be the ones going to bat for you, the people that should believe in you. How, how do you walk forward in, in the face of your dream 
knowing that so many people around you don't believe, don't have faith in you? How do you maintain that that focus and not allow the joy of your dream to be to be stolen or taken away? That's that's a tough one because not everyone is wired the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, you know, it's almost a badge of honor for someone to express doubt. It's almost a badge of honor yeah. to express doubt. Absolutely, because you, you tell me what I can't do. Uh-huh. I'll do it twice as good, uh-huh. so I can make you eat your words. Mm. So I can remember when I was in high school. You know, I wasn't a very good student, not because not because I wasn't intelligent, not because I couldn't learn, but, but because I didn't apply myself. Mm-hmm. So um, my junior year, I go in to see, sit down with my guidance counselor, who happened to be the offensive line coach on the football team. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a conversation about college. Mm-hmm. And um, he looks me in the eye and he says, you know, I don't think you can handle the academics on a Division One level. And on the inside, I was boiling. But as I look back in retrospect, he has my files. Mm-hmm. He's been looking at he's been looking at my grades since my freshman year. Mm-hmm. All he's doing is is expressing an opinion mm-hmm. based upon the work that I've submitted. Right, based on your current performance. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what he did not know. You know, what was truly in my heart and the intellect that was truly in my mind. That when I set my mind and I set my heart to something, that yeah, I can do whatever it is that I want to do. Because if I wanted to go to college, I knew I'd have to apply myself in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, I just need the opportunity, you know. But rather than than getting to this hubbub with him, I closed my folder. Mm -hmm. I said, thank you. I shook his hand. Did you? And I walked out of the office. Even though you were boiling on the inside. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know where that calm came from because usually, you know, back then I was a little more hot tempered and easily triggered. But um, that was another critical moment for me because he was basically telling me that, you know, my dream of playing college football was unattainable. Mm-hmm. You know. So he was an, he was one, you know, there were friends when I decided, to, you know, that I was going to go to the University of Texas at El Paso. There was family members, um, you know, people that that I thought would be more supportive. They didn't necessarily say it to my face, but, you know, the buzz was around, mm-hmm. you know, oh, he'll go away. He'll be back after the first semester. Oh, he'll be back after the first year. Um Another critical thing that happened is when I went to El Paso um, to go to school, my mom flew down with me. I was 17 years old. Mm. Um, I had never gone on a recruiting trip there, so I had no idea what El Paso was like. You know, I had a completely different mm-hmm. concept of, yeah. you know, of Texas. And, you and, know, you- and West Texas and East <laughs> Texas is, is like, you know, night and day. And, and you were coming from where at this point? From New York. You were coming from New York? Yeah. Okay. Yep. 17-year-old from New York. 17-year-old from New York. Mm-hmm. Where, where in New York? Um, up in the Rockland, Westchester area. Okay. So from the Rockland, Westchester area. Trees, mountain, green, to the desert. To the desert. To the desert. Of El Paso. As we're flying in, I'm looking out of the window, and I'm like, oh, my God. What have I gotten myself into? Because I couldn't see any trees. 
I couldn't see any green. All I could see was mountain and mountains and dirt. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I committed myself to? So my mom came with me. She hung out for about two days because, you know, she wanted to make sure she had to come and make sure everything was on the, the up and up. Mm-hmm. And As moms do. Yes. And when when she left, she looked me in the eyes. She said, don't come home. She said, don't come home. And I and I knew what that meant. That didn't mean don't come, don't come home for the summer. Don't come home for Christmas. Don't come home for Easter break. It meant finish it. Mm. Finish what you're here to do. Complete it. Don't do what everybody else back home does. Because at home there was this there was this cycle mm-hmm. that was going on. You know, kids would graduate, go away, spend a semester, a couple of weeks, they come back home, they get a job, and and, and everyone was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had made my mind up a long time, you know, before I went away to El Paso that I was gonna be the one one of the ones in my family to break that, to break that chain, to break that loop. Mm. Um, but when she said, "Was she?" I mean, there were many a times, many a times, you know, being in a place, you know, that was culturally awkward for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I grew up in the beginning era of hip hop. Mm-hmm. You know, Sugar Hill Gang, and you know th- that whole thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, I find myself in. West Texas, mm-hmm. where they're like two years behind in music and fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were so many times I just wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get on a bus and leave. Mm-hmm. But all I could see is her eyes looking at me and all I could hear was her voice, don't come home. You're talking about these moments. That's a moment. It's a moment that matters. Yeah, and, and we have these moments in life that we don't really pay attention to, you know, until we start to have conversations like this mm-hmm. that, you know, all of a sudden you realize, like when when she said, if I sign you up this year, you're going to finish it. That's right. Moment. Mm-hmm. The guidance counselor telling me that I couldn't handle the academics on a Division One level. Moment. Mm-hmm. Don't come home. Moment. Those are life-altering, mindset-altering moments because what winds up happening is the realization kicks in. And where your mindset might have been, oh, I'll quit if I... Now, all of a sudden, the mindset is, you can't. Mm-hmm. You know, you have no other choice. Mm-hmm. Well, you had a choice. Well, I had a choice. The well, choices just weren't good. Th- well... There really was no choice. There was a choice before she wrote the check for 25 bucks. <laughs> okay. There was a choice before I got on the plane and went to El Paso, Texas. I see. There was a choice before, you know, I sat down with my guidance counselor and talked with him. Yeah. You know, but once, you know, once she wrote the check, once the guidance counselor said what he said, mm-hmm. once I got on the plane, mm-hmm. there was there was no choice. Mm-hmm. You know. For you, there was this threshold effect where once you crossed a particular threshold, mm-hmm. once she wrote the check, once she shook the guidance counselor's hand, once she got off the plane, that was it. You, it. You'd commit it. Committed. Committed 100%. You know, and there was no going back. Because it was all leading to where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, you talked a, a little while ago about patience. Mm-hmm. You know, it took patience to play four years of high school football and win maybe four games mm-hmm. when you're playing nine games a year. Mm-hmm. It took patience to play collegiate football for four years and only win five games in your four years being there. Mm-hmm. It took patience for me to, you know, even in the face of being released the first two games of, of the year to turn around and come back to the organization with the correct mindset to that to make the promise to yourself and the commitment to yourself that you're going to do everything in your power um, to stick and stay this time. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about being in a place where you have the correct mindset. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about what it looks and feels like when you know you're in the correct mindset? What does that look and feel like for you? Well, the the objective is always positive. Uh-huh. Even even in the midst of the negativity, the mindset is always positive. Um, I tell people all the time, you know, we live in a in a in a in a temporal world. And in a temporal world, you can't lock yourself into something that that you think is going to be that way all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, things are always changing. Mm-hmm. So very few it, things it, are constant. Yes. And, and if, if something negative is going on and I allow, allow myself to, you know, get into a negative mindset. Now I've locked myself into negativity mm-hmm. and I've lost the understanding that. If we live in a temporal world, that that negative situation is temporal, meaning that it's going to change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to something has to shift. So, I mean, it, there's been times when I where I've been on the football field, I'm sitting on the bench, sitting next to my teammates. And I'm like, you know, hey, somebody needs to make a play. I'm about I'm about to go out here and get an interception, cause a fumble. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and make a play. The next series, I go out interception. Mm hmm. And I'm sitting on the bench, and my teammates, the same ones that were sitting next to me before that series, they look at me and they're like, what do you know that we don't know? Mm. Now, I didn't really understand the power of that, and I don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, had I understood the power of it, I probably would have been doing a heck of a lot more of it. But, um, you know, I've seen it happen many, many times. So, you know, to answer your question, you've always got to stay in a positive mindset because, you know, suddenlies happen all the time. Suddenlies happen all the suddenlies. time. Suddenlies. Suddenlies are things where things aren't going right. And all it takes is one move, one call, one person, one opportunity, one situation to flip the entire thing. It just know? takes one. Yeah. And if you're, if you're expectantly positive about it, it's a heck of a lot more likely to happen than it is if you're expectedly negative about it because you're going to draw to yourself, you know, those things that, you know, that you focus on, mm-hmm. that which you give your attention to is what you draw to you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're not looking at things in a positive way, you know, how can you expect for positive things to come your way? Mm-hmm. This mindset that you've discussed around attracting positive things mm-hmm. to you, thinking about things in a positive way is this something that you've actively cultivated within yourself over time? Okay. So it was a subconscious act at past times in my life. Mm-hmm. 
now through through my faith and through you know other learning mm-hmm. now I understand the power of it mm-hmm. so I can actively use it mm-hmm. people tell me all the time you know hey you know you never seem to get phased about anything and I'm like yeah because I know that you know, life is too short for me to be worrying about things that I can't control the mm-hmm. things that I can control I control and the things that I can't I like my grandmother used to say God will work them out and when he works them out, they'll be worked out the way they're supposed to be worked out. Mm. And that's just, you know, I, I just live that way because I can sit up at night worrying about stressed, you know, not getting enough rest. I worry about, you know, things that, you know, there's a ton of things that go on every day in life that you can worry about. But some things you can control, some things you can't. You know, you stay positive as you can possibly be and realize that, you know, things always fall into place the way that they're supposed to fall into place. Mm. And sometimes they even, they fall into place in a better manner than you could have ever expect it. Mm-hmm. So, so I think what you're saying is fascinating because first of all, you're talking about this concept that you have to believe in yourself first in order to develop that sense of confidence, that that sense of confidence doesn't come as a prerequisite prior to you believing in yourself. Can you talk about what got you across the expanse from surviving in the NFL to thriving in the NFL and actually getting to a place where you believed in yourself? How did that happen? I think, you know, in the NFL, it was about, it was about the experience Mm -hmm. because as I, as I began to play, you know, I, I continued to get better and better each week. Mm-hmm. I continue to make more plays week after week, you know. And like I said, when um, when the older guys, when one of the older guys actually got back from injury, I basically had taken his job. Mm-hmm. So that kind of that showed me right there that that I was on the right track. Mm-hmm. It's the experience of you know having success. You know, success breeds success. So as I'm having success on the field. You know, my confidence, you know, every week, it just keeps stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, as I go into the off season, as I prepare, you know, we were, we were talking about opportunities indoors a little while ago. Yeah. But I can remember going in, talking to my head coach after the season was over. He said, hey, you got your foot in the door. He said, kick the damn thing open. The job is yours to lose. And, you know, now that I think back about that, I'm like, Wow. You know, that opportunity was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had the ability to go into that offseason knowing that the job was mine. Mm. So, I mean, there was no question. I wasn't going to come back and have to compete. You know, all I had to do was go into the offseason and take care of business, train, eat right, you know, continue to study, do all the things that were necessary to be prepared once I got to camp and 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 in preparation for the upcoming season, you know, if I just continued to do what I was doing and exponentially, you know, a little bit at a time continue to, you know, improve mm-hmm. that, you know, the sky was the limit. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, you know, you got to you got to have confidence in yourself. But at the same at the same token, you know, that validation from him, that confidence from him that, hey, the job is yours to win or lose. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
that wasn't presented to me way back in camp. Mm -hmm. What was presented to me in camp is you can be a special teams player, if anything, on this team. Now, all of a sudden, the season's over. Seven, eight, six, seven months later, oh, the job is yours to win and lose. So that's a shift in mindset for someone who looks at it from the right perspective. Mm -hmm. Because I can go into the season, hey, you know, I'm going to go to Vegas and hang out and party and do my thing and have a good time and come into the season not prepared, not ready, not in shape, not trained up. Or I can go home and do the requisite work and come back, you know, in the best shape that I could possibly be in, increase knowledge of the game, um, ready to go and just ready to take my game to another level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. So there's something that there's a shift that occurs then from being surrounded by people who are detractors and needing to carry your own torch of self-possession of self-belief to now having someone in an influential position, mm -hmm. your head coach who says, I see this for you. Well, it's validation, mm -hmm. you know, and every everyone needs, you know, validation. I did a talk not too long ago, you know, for a company, and I used this acronym, UC, UCV. UCV. Um, UCV. Um, understanding, caring, and validation. The one thing about our, my coach is he always looked to understand us. It's hard to work with people when, they don't understand who you are. Mm -hmm. They don't understand what's going on in your world, what's going on in your life. You got to meet people where they are. Yeah. So what he would do is, you know, hey, you know, how's the kids? You know, how's the family? You know, is everything good? You know, sometimes you check in for work, you punch the clock, you punch out at five and that's it. You know, you don't even talk to your superiors about, you know, they don't know who you are. You're just, you know, collecting the check every two weeks. Mm -hmm. But with him, it was different because, you know, he created relationship because he wanted to understand his players. Mm -hmm. The other thing was people don't know that you care until you show you care. And by showing that he was trying to understand us, that showed that he cared. Mm -hmm. When he asked, hey, how's, you know, because my daughter was born, I want to say my second, third year in the league. Mm -hmm. For him to ask, hey, how's your daughter doing? Mm -hmm. That showed that he cared not only about me as a football player, but what was going on in my life, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and the V is validation. You know, people who are in a position to validate need to validate your good points um, and not only harp on the negative things. Mm. You know, it's a lot easier to point out the things that people do wrong. Mm -hmm. Um it's hard for people to affirm other people. Mm -hmm. It's hard for people to validate other people. Mm -hmm. But when you validate someone the way he validated, and he was tough because, you know, my first two years, he never called me by my first name. I was a number. Mm. Hey, 59. Hey, 59. For two years. The mm -hmm. third year I come back for minicamp and he calls me by my first name. I was like, what the hell just shifted? Mm. But what I realized was the rite of passage had been completed. Mm. He now trusts me. I was now one of his guys. Mm -hmm. I was now, that brought on a whole new level of confidence. Mm. Okay. And that whole validation thing that I was talking about, yeah, he would get on you because that was his job. But he had this uncanny ability to validate you when you did great things. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he would give you opportunities to validate yourself. I can remember one time I overslept for a, a Saturday practice. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the complex, practice was done. Everybody was leaving. Mm-hmm. That's how late I was. Oh, my gosh. So I go into his office. And, you know, usually that's a pretty hefty fine, if not, you know, a suspension for the upcoming game. Uh-huh. You know, and he looks at me and he says, you know, give me a good game tomorrow and we'll forget this happened. Now, that kind of thing doesn't happen that often. Yeah. So you can best believe that was one of my better games, mm. you know. But he get, he gives you the opportunity to write the ship, but he also, you know, validates you in, in, in a way where, you know, you, you feel you feel that you're more than just, just an employee. Mm-hmm. More than just a number. More than just Literally. a number. Literally. There you go. So, Seth... In closing, you know, you've had some really key lessons that have emerged for you around resilience and how you think about that concept for yourself personally. Could you share with us just a couple of of your lessons around resilience and, and what you would share with other people based on your experiences? I think that there's no there's you talked about there being two options for me. When I endeavor to do something, there's only one option. Mm-hmm. I only have one. Is there a plan B? I don't think there can be a plan B, mm. you know, because it takes too much energy to be to succeed at plan A to even worry about formulating a plan B. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times if you formulate a plan B and it's not applicable to all situations, but in my opinion, if you take the time to formulate a plan B, you've already set yourself up for the what if. You've already set yourself up for the failure mm-hmm. or the or the setback, mm-hmm. you know. So why not only give yourself one option? If you give yourself one option, then there's only one option, and that that is to succeed. And you'll do whatever you have to do along the way to to make that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, even when you meet roadblocks along the way, you realize that there's something that you know. You take three steps, mm-hmm. and there's a roadblock. Well, there's something that went wrong along the way in those three steps. Mm-hmm. Turn around, look at what the mistake was, fix it. And when you turn back around, the roadblock will be removed uh-huh. because there's something to be learned. Now, you might only take two or three more steps before you face another roadblock, but there's always something to learn. Sometimes, you know, we get stuck at the wall where we don't we can't look back and see what the lessons are. What did you do wrong? Sure. I think we're always being tested. Uh-huh. Um, the universe doesn't yield its rewards nor its resources without testing us. We'll say that we want to do something. Um, and for me, you know, when I think about it in football terms, the test was those two weeks that I was released. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really wanted was taken away. Mm-hmm. And the universe was pretty much asking me, how bad do you want it? Mm. You know, because, I mean, I was I was ready to, you know, go back to El Paso, enroll in school. I was, you know, on the verge of accepting that, you know, I wasn't going to get get another shot until the following year. Um, but I say that the universe will not yield its rewards nor resources without tests, that just means that, okay, when you endeavor to do something, 
and things go sideways, um, are you going to persevere? Mm-hmm. Are you going to show resiliency in the moment? Mm-hmm. For the person who gives up, the universe is looking and says, aha, see, you lied to me. You told me that you wanted X, Y, and Z. You told me that you wanted to be successful. You told me you wanted to be a professional ball player. You told me you wanted to be to create your own business. Mm-hmm. But now that some adversity is in your way, you're just going to quit? Mm. See, you lied to me. This is the universe. This is the universe. This is how the universe deals with us. Okay. But for the person who remains resilient to the person who perseveres, there comes a point in time where the, where the universe, universe has no other choice but to yield its resources. You can't hold them back any longer because everything that it throws at you, everything that it, that, it, that it has thrown at you, you've endured it, you've overcome it, and you've persevered through it. And it comes a point in time where the universe looks and says, you know what, I can't hold it back anymore. And then it just, it has to release it. Mm-hmm. It is a universal law. Mm. What I'm saying is a universal law that the universe will test you to see if those things that you say that you want, those dreams that you say you want to attain, mm-hmm. that success that you say you want, whether or not you're committed to it, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's testing you all the time. Yeah, that's great. So your top three lessons are options. You don't have any. Mm-hmm. There's do or do not. <laughs> there is no try. That's, see now, and, and that's up for debate because there's a lot of people, you know, that don't think that way. Me being a type A personality, I can't see the other side, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, and, and I was looking at your five principles and sometimes, you know, that th- th- when you stop for diminishing returns and have to redirect. You know, you're, in my opinion, I think you're always redirecting as you go, but I can't stop going that way. Mm-hmm. I just can't. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it means it, when there's an obstacle, there's only three options. Mm-hmm. I'm going through it or four. I'm going through it. I'm going over it. I'm going around it. I'm going under it. Mm-hmm. But some way, one way or the other, I'm getting past it. Mm-hmm. There's just no other option, mm-hmm. you know. For some people, they'll turn around and go the other way and walk around the mountain. You know, they'll take. The, well, I shouldn't say walk around the mountain because that's one of the one of the analogies that I use. But they will change courses. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. If what I want is in that direction. Yeah. The quickest way to point A is a straight line. Mm-hmm. Is a linear approach. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can get there that way, that's the way I want to go. If I got to go over it. If I got to go under, if I got to go around it, more times than not, I'm going to try to go through it first. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I understand what you're saying. But some people, some people will err on the side of just going the other direction or giving up. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's just not an option. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I there is no option. You know, if you want it bad enough, you've got to go straight forward with it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's beautiful. So so in summary, there is no plan B. No plan B. Roadblocks are inevitable. Mm-hmm. And the universe tests us. And there comes a point where the universe gives us enough tests that it has no choice but to cede us its mm-hmm. resources. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Because what, it, what the universe does, the universe is watching. 
It's watching you at all times. And it's watching your actions. It's watching your reactions. Mm -hmm. So we have this uncanny ability to lie to ourselves. You know, oh, I want this, this, and this. I tell my son all the time, if, if it takes a, a certain type of person, a resilient person to be successful. I said, because if it was easy to be successful, everyone would be successful. Mm -hmm. I said, why do you think there are so few successful people in the world? Because there's only a limited amount of people. It's not really limited because we all have the ability, but there's only a few amount of people in this world that are willing to sacrifice and do what is necessary to get to what where they want to be and accomplish what they want to accomplish. Yeah. You know, everybody else, they quit along the way and then they complain and come up with excuses why. Yeah. And the universe is looking and saying, see, mm -hmm. you lied to me. Mm -hmm. You told me one thing, but your actions are something completely different. Yeah. But for that person who just puts their head down and goes to work, and every time something's thrown in their way, they figure out a way to navigate around it. Every time some circumstance come up, that requires change, they're willing to change, yeah. knowing that every great laid out plan never works out that way. That's right. That there's always some adjustments along the way. If you're if you're flexible enough to adjust to get to where you need to get to, that at some point in time the universe has to throw up his hands and say, you know what? Hey. Mm-hmm. You did it. Test complete. You did it. It's like moving from the 11th grade to the 12th grade. You can't move from the 11th grade to the 12th grade until you complete the, the course requirements and all the tests that are necessary. Yeah. Now you can move to the next level. Seth, thanks for being here today. Your story and your perspectives are, are fascinating and uplifting and enlightening. And I know many, many people will benefit from, well, from hearing your story more than, we'll, more than we'll ever know. There you go. Thanks for being here with My us pleasure. today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I have thought about this conversation with Seth so many times in the last year since we recorded. And one of the things that strikes me is that success that you say you want, that success that I say I want. Life presents open doors all of the time. Will we allow ourselves to be paralyzed by fear or walk through the door and see what life has in store for us. Until next time, this is Dr. Taryn Marie signing off for our Flourish or Fold podcast, Stories of Resilience.